2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who believe in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you please use these words. Lord, would you stir up faith? Would you help people to see the wonder, the joy, the hope that there is in you that can be found by your grace alone, by faith? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if someone came to Wichita Falls and asked you what top attractions they should do, what would you say? Well, if you go to TripAdvisor, you would know that number five is Castaway Cove. Number four is Museum of North Texas History. Number three is the Falls in Lucy Park. Number two is Backdoor Theater. And number one, River Bend Nature Center. To experience and know Wichita Falls, at least by TripAdvisor, those are the supposedly five things you must do. Well, if you were to go to TripAdvisor, this doesn't exist, but to go and look up the top passages of Scripture, what would you see? Well, I think what would need to be included for sure is Genesis 1. Because we have to know of God's eternal existence, His creation of the world and His making us in His image. We can't understand the rest of the Bible or life without understanding Genesis 3 and the fall of sin. The call of Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 12, sets the, sets the stage for the rest of God's activity. Exodus 14 is essential as God redeems Israel out of Egypt. And then Exodus 20, the commands for how do we live as redeemed people. Well, you would definitely need to turn to 2 Samuel 7 to see God's promise to David. And then how that will later be fulfilled in an eternal covenant and kingdom in Christ. You couldn't understand God's character without knowing His holiness in Isaiah 6 and His sacrificial love in Isaiah 53. And this culminates in Jesus' coming and the declaration in Matthew 1 that Mary will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. To know God and His plan, you'd have to know that God sent His Son out of love and you'd have to turn to John 3. And then there's many other important passages we would turn to, but... I would argue one of the most crucial is the one we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. To know ourselves, to know God, to know how we're saved, this passage is crucial. We could then wrap up this top 12, I couldn't get it down to 10, this top 12 by looking at Revelation 21 
and how this will all culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, every verse from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is important. It is all inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, training, and righteousness. And yet, there are some that are weightier, some that are clear, clearer or more readily accessible. And throughout time, Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10, has been helpful to people as we see a clear, a concise way that lays out the basics of God's actions, our response, and what this should lead to. We'll be looking at three things this morning. I don't think it's on the back of the bulletin, but there's space there if you want to put it. First, we're saved by grace through faith. The first part of verse 8. Second, we're going to see saved as a gift, not a payment. Saved as a gift, not a payment. And then we'll wrap up up with saved for good works. So first, saved by grace through faith. Like a juicy T-bone, we've been savoring each bite of Paul's rich words here in this passage, and we've now come to Paul really reiterating what he said before. As we read it a few minutes ago, you may have noticed that Paul is saying here in verse 8 what he said in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul is telling of what God did for us in Christ. Three things. First, he says he made us alive with Christ. And then he's so excited in verse 5 that he breaks off from what he's saying to say, by grace you've been saved. It's as though he's so joyful at God raising us with Christ by grace that he inserts this comment. And then he gets back to track, back on track, so to speak. And he talks about how we're raised with Christ and we're seated with Christ. Now, in verse 8, Paul goes back to pick up what he said in verse 5 about by grace you've been saved to explain and clarify what he means. But all of this begs a question. By grace you've been saved. Well, saved from what? Why did we need to be saved? Well, the angel who came and spoke to Joseph told him why. He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what we need to be saved from. And Jesus understood this was his mission. You may remember the story in Mark 2, where Jesus is in a crowd in a house. And it's so crowded that people who have a friend who can't walk can't bring him to Jesus. So what do they do? They start tearing the roof apart. And they let the man in. And do you all remember what Jesus says to the young man when he's with him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, surely the man who's lying there is thinking, I didn't really come to get my sins forgiven. I want to walk. That's why I'm here. Don't you understand? Like they just tore the roof open because I can't walk. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about our bodies because he does heal the young man. But he's wanting the young man and us to know there's something more important than your body. You have a much greater illness than the one that you can see. And that is that you are in your sins. And so Jesus gets to the man's deepest problem and forgives his sins. You know, Jesus knew that we must be saved from our sins because the wages of sin is death. And Paul said here in Ephesians 2 and in other places, we are dead in our trespasses. Our sin led to our physical death, but also it led to a spiritual death. And more than that, Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So what do we need to be saved from? 
We're saved from the punishment we deserve due to sin, death, and God's wrath. And Paul explains how that grace is given to us to save us, and that is through faith. Now we need to pause because many people use the word faith, but I don't think it means what they think it means. Consider, for example, Dan Brown's famous book, The Da Vinci Code. In it, one character says, Every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That is the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true. That which we cannot prove. The character continues. Every religion describes God through metaphor, allegory, and exaggeration. From the early Egyptians through modern Sunday school. Metaphors are a way to help our minds process the unprocessable. The problems arise when we begin to believe literally in our own metaphors. Should we wave a flag and tell the Buddhists that we have proof the Buddha did not come from a lotus blossom? Or that Jesus was not born of a literal virgin birth? Those who truly understand their face understand the stories are metaphorical. Thus, Dan Brown's character is asserting what many people believe, that faith is about imagination, things you can't prove. And that's the common view many people have. Yes, there's faith and there's reason, and these are polar opposites. But when the Bible talks about faith, that is exactly not what it is talking about. The Bible never says faith is imagination. And while, yes, the Bible contains metaphors, it is often clear when it is a metaphor or when it's a literal historical fact. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke wanted to convince Theophilus of the things that were said about Jesus, he said he researched and he did an orderly account. Then Luke added that he did this so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke expected certainty could be reached as to whether Jesus really existed. <coughs> and Jesus came in such a way that he expected people to believe what he did was real and historical, not just myth and metaphor. Thus, what did Jesus do? He did miracles. He did healings. He brought people back to life. He wasn't born and then lived and then after a long life come out and say, well, I... Y'all don't really have any proof of this, but I want to let you know I'm God's son and you should believe in me. Well, no, he gave them reasons to believe. You know, think even of the resurrection. A lot of people will say, well, that's a good myth, a good story. And yet, the scenes around it make clear that it wasn't a nice story to encourage them. In fact, they wouldn't have believed the story. Consider the disciples around the times when Jesus was arrested they fled when Peter was questioned about his connection to Jesus he lied and when Jesus was put to death there was fear there was doubt and there went and hid if anything their faith believed that it was over that this couldn't happen and yet it was the undeniable fact of nail pierced hands and feet and Jesus standing before them that led to their faith. And even Jesus, when Thomas doubted, he didn't just say, well, look, y'all need to tell him. He just needs to believe this stuff. Jesus appeared and said, come feel my hands. Come feel my side. He doesn't just tell us to believe, but he gives us reasons to believe that it's actually true. And then Paul tells of 500 people being eyewitness 
to the resurrection. He even answers the critique, well, what if all this isn't real? Well, Paul says, well, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all pity most to be pitied. Thus, in contrast to the opinion of Dan Brown's character, we should wave a flag, so to speak, and tell the Buddhists that we have proof the Buddha did not come from a lotus blossom. We should, if we have Christian friends who say, well, it's all just a myth, we should tell them, no, that's not true. It actually did happen. Jesus did come, live in Nazareth, then serve in the region of Israel, be crucified, and rise again. You know, I should say there's many children in here. There comes a point in your life when you need to ask, is this really true? Not just, well, is this what my parents taught me, or is this what my family believes, but do you consider it to be true? Not, is it popular or puritanical? Not, is it progressive or conservative? Not, is it old-fashioned or cutting-edged? Not is it on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, but is what we say we believe true? Do the facts line up with it? And if so, then live your whole life in light of it. If not, then don't waste your time. There's a lot better things you could do if all of this is just a myth to get us through. This really gets to the second misunderstanding of what the Bible means by faith, though. Because some think faith is wishful thinking though we've seen faith is really the rational response to evidence. But others think faith is just mere mental agreement with a set of facts. Yet James 2 declares that the demons even believe that God exists. Yet they don't trust and follow him. You know, the faith talked about here in Ephesians 2.8 is faith that doesn't just agree with facts, but rather is an act of trust, a reliance, a resting on who God is and what he is said. And all of us express this type of trust multiple times every day. I didn't see any of you before you plopped down, run a stress test on your chair. You looked at it, you thought, well, I don't think anyone in this room would set up a chair that's going to collapse when I sit on it. And you plopped your whole weight down. This morning, when you ate your bacon and eggs or whatever, most of you probably didn't first get out some lab equipment and test to see, well, is there salmonella? No, you trusted that the grocery store took care of them, kept everything refrigerated at the right time and place and temperature. You trusted that your parents took care of the food, that they didn't leave it out to spoil, and you ate it. You trusted all these people. You had good reasons to, but we all live lives of faith. And you could say you actually didn't believe the chair would hold you. You didn't actually believe the food was safe until you sat in the chair until you took the bite. You could say, oh yeah, those chairs are great. But if you never sit down, you're not actually trusting in it. Likewise, saving faith in Jesus is not just saying, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus lived and died And if you trust him. No, do you trust him? Are you putting your life in his hands? Not just do you agree with the facts about him, but are you resting in him? Are you submitting to him? And the point is not so much that faith saves you, but that Christ saves you through faith. You know, faith is merely the channel or the means by which we connect to Christ. 
Now this illustration is getting harder because people don't drink from the tap anymore. But if you're crazy like me and trust your tap water, you can follow this illustration. Imagine you desperately need water. And you're so thirsty and you come inside and you turn the water on. I know some of you are gross, like he doesn't drink bottled water. Oh, he's going to kill himself. But let's go with the illustration. And I turn the tap on and I fill up my cup and I drink it. I then don't say, oh, I am so thankful for those copper pipes. Well, the copper pipes didn't satisfy my thirst. The water did. But I didn't get the water just magically. It came through copper pipes. Our hope is in Christ. He comes to us by faith, but we don't trust in our faith. We don't go, oh, faith is so wonderful. We say, Christ is so wonderful. And like the copper pipes, faith is how we connect to Christ. You know, sadly, sometimes people put their faith in their faith. You say, well, how do you know you're saved? Well, you know, when I was 12 years old, I did this. I trusted Christ. And they're trusting their moment of conversion. Don't put faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ. And the Bible is clear from beginning to end that we're always saved by Christ through faith. That's in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison and the Philippian jailer comes to them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.9 declares, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, do you trust him? Do you today lean on him? Know that he will save you. Not, do you trust that a man named Jesus lived once and that, yeah, there's a God and, yeah, God's love, but do you trust in Jesus? Is he your savior on whom you lean? Do you rejoice in God's amazing grace that rescued sinners like me and you? Well, Paul really wants them to grasp that this is by grace, so he expands at the end of verse 8, in the beginning of verse 9, that this is a gift. Our second point, saved as a gift, not a payment. It says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, what is the gift of God? Is the gift God's grace? Is the gift our faith? Is the gift God's salvation? And of course, if you've been around Keith and I long enough, you know the answer is yes. All of those are God's gift. And you could, we could turn to various passages that show that each one of those is a gift. God gives us grace. God gives us faith. God gives us salvation. But I want us to turn to Romans chapter 4. So keep a finger in Ephesians 2, but turn to Romans chapter 4, because there, what we read earlier, we're going to look at again, because there it's a parallel passage, and I think it's clear in that passage, the gift is salvation. And so I think that's probably what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2 as well. But Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Excuse me. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you have a job and you work 40 hours and you then get your paycheck, you might say, well, thank you. But you don't actually mean, well, thank you, that was so generous and kind of you because you earned it. You deserve it. You are supposed to be paid. But if you've been sick and you've already used up all your sick time, and you're like, well, I'm sick, but I can't go in, and you don't go in all week, and the next Monday you show up and your boss gives you a check for all 40 hours, you go, what is this? He goes, well, it's a gift. Why? I didn't earn it. And that's the point. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans 4. You know, if Abraham had earned it, it would be his payment. It would be not a gift. It would be what he had earned. But look again at Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In fact, salvation is when we stop trying. It's when we say, I cannot earn your favor, God. It has to be your grace through Christ. That's then when we are counted as holy and righteous. Well, back to Ephesians 2, verse 9. Paul here makes this explicit by adding, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, nothing we do, not our religious efforts, not our moral life, not our good deeds, nothing makes us acceptable to God. You know, sadly, even this morning we heard a testimony, that's not sad that we heard the testimony, but sad what we heard in the testimony, that people believe, oh, if I'm baptized, then I'm saved. Your baptism does not save you. It's not as though if you get baptized, well, then you're good. Then you're saved. Nothing we do. The only hope we have is the grace of God given to us in Christ. That's why God says in Isaiah 66, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. God wants the humble and contrite, meaning those who admit they have not earned God's favor. In fact, they know what we need from God is mercy and grace, not justice. If we got what we deserved, if we got justice, there would be no hope. Yet God, by His grace, gives us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and love. And Paul says that the reason God chose to save us is this way is so that no one may boast. You know boasting. They win hi-ho cheerio. And they do a happy dance for five minutes about how great they are. They tell you that they're faster, they're stronger, their dad could beat up your dad, and all these things. We know boasting. Well, no one will be in heaven and go, well, I earned this. I was a lot better at going to church. You know, we all know what you did in private now, but I didn't do those things in private. I was the same person. I, I was good at church. I was good at home. I was good all alone. I earn this. No one will say that. In contrast to all our boasting, Galatians 6.14 says, But far, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's why we sing, When I survey 
the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. <coughs> you know, we, we think of these verses here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I think sometimes we apply them to the wrong type of people. We think of people like Martin Luther, who in his quest to be made right with God, was very fastidious in his religious deeds. He went to the cathedral in Rome, and he would pray on every single step, going up one step to the next on his knees, so that by the time he was at the top, his knees were bloodied. He would confess his sin for hours and would mentally and physically flog himself. Now, there are people like that today who are zealously doing religious deeds to atone for their guilt, but by and large, most people today don't even feel guilty. Most people today say, I, I'm the one who gets to set my own rules and I don't see anything wrong with what I'm doing. I'm fine. They think we're overall fairly good people. They're not trying to get some religious deed done. And though we've largely denied our sinfulness as a society, yet we still look to our good deeds to give us favor with God. That's why if you ask most people, are you going to go to heaven? They may not be concerned about their sin, but they'll still say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. They still trust that, well, what I do is going to make me okay with God. And the problem is they're comparing themselves to others rather than God. We forget God's holy and righteous character that demands that we not be better than our neighbor, better than our spouse, better than our community, but that we must be perfect as he is perfect. Thus, most Westerners are not actively burdened about their sin before God and thus doing religious deeds to save them, yet we still do live with a good works mindset that their actions, not God's grace, is what will get them to heaven. And this even shows itself in our Christian life. I've shared this anecdote before, but let me share it again. You know, what do you do when you feel like you really need something and you turn to God in prayer? I know a lot of people, maybe a child gets really sick, or maybe they're in financial straits or something, and they go, you know what, we better start going to church, because we really need God to help us. I remember being in college and getting ready to take my third biology exam, and I was on the fence. Got something like a 73 on the first, a 69 on the second, so I mean, if I fail this exam, I'm, I'm going to fail. And as I'm walking, I begin to pray, and I think, oh, I can't pray. And I remember some sin I'd done. Now, the point is not that sins don't affect our prayers with God. Peter talks about how husbands and wives should live so their prayers are not hindered. Yet the point is, what do we do when we know we need God, and we want to pray, and we remember sin? Do we then go, okay, so I'm going to go to church tonight. That's, yep. When I get home, I'm going to pray some more, and I'm going to read my Bible more, and I'm going, and I'm I, 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 I. Or do we say, God, I am a sinner. I know what I did, and it was wrong. Would you forgive me? And by your grace, would you now hear my prayer? You know, 
We can live saying, yes, we're saved by grace, but then we can live each day as though, well, it's how good I'm doing today as to whether God is going to hear me. Jerry Bridges summarizes this well. He says, regardless of our performance, we are always dependent on God's grace, His undeserved favor to those who deserve His wrath. Some days we may be more acutely conscious of our sinfulness and hence more aware of our need for His grace, but there is never a day where we can stand before God on our own two feet of performance when we are worthy enough to deserve His blessing. So are you coming to God, not just for your initial salvation, but day by day contrite and calling out for grace? Or are you coming thinking, well, I was a pretty good Christian today. I feel like I could come to God and he's probably going to hear this prayer now. I mean, I got up, I read my Bible. I didn't kick the dog when it deserved it. I went, I was kind at work. I was so wonderful. God's going to hear these prayers. Or do you go... God, thank you for helping me live that way today, but I need your grace now as I enter into this new thing. Every day, we need God's grace. And God tells us He rejects the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And yet I know throughout history, people have heard what I have just said, and they say, whoa, 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 there's a problem with what you're saying, because if you're going to tell everyone it's all about grace, and it's not about what you do, then everyone's going to go, well, great, then we can do whatever we want. We can live in sin because God's just going to forgive us. It's just going to be grace. So you can't preach that message, people say, because people will just rebel. You have to make them live in fear of judgment. And yet while people say that, Paul anticipated that objection. And so that leads to our third and final point, that we're saved for good works. Verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul declares we are God's workmanship. And the word workmanship comes excuse me, from a Greek word, poiema. And the only other time it's used in the New Testament is Romans 1.20. There, Paul explains how God's invisible attributes, namely his divine power, and, sorry, eternal power in divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Same word, poiema. Thus, when God says we are His workmanship, is saying that He is the maker of us, that we are His creation. He's the magnificent artist. Sarah and I used to watch a show, I don't think they make it anymore, called Dinner Impossible. I don't know if you have ever seen the show. A chef was given an impossible task, such as being given the food at a baseball park and being told to make a gourmet meal. And actually, in 2008, he was sent here to Shepherd Air Force Base and had to make a gourmet meal for a thousand officers and VIPs in 10 hours for the 60th anniversary of the Air Force. But at the end of each show, though people would comment about the food, what they would always say is, how did he do it? How did he pull it off? That's the point here. When people look at our lives, if they see good works, they should go, how did he, God, pull it off? How did he take person impossible, Jeremy, who's selfish and uncaring about anyone, and make him someone who loves other people? That's impossible. You know, when it says we are his workmanship, 
people should stand in awe of God and go, wow, do you remember what that person was like? And now look at what God has made them to be. In fact, if any of the good works we do, we do them because it says God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Now remember the whole context because there's a really striking contrast. Look again at verse 1 that said, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We used to follow the footsteps of our father, the devil. But we have been recreated and now we walk in the footsteps that God has prepared for us to walk in. He's made a good path for us and we just need to walk into them. In it. Thus, Paul doesn't see any contradiction to saying we're saved by grace, through faith alone, not by anything we do. And then also immediately saying, and faith and grace don't stay alone, but rather they're always accompanied by works. His point is that faith changes us. You know, this is really what Paul's been saying throughout verse 5. We were dead, but by grace we were made alive. Salvation makes us alive. Flip over a few books to Titus chapter 2, we'll we'll see a similar thing. Right before the book of Hebrews in Philemon is the book of Titus, three chapters. And we'll look at Titus 2, 11 through 14. Here Paul's talking about the grace of God. And in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In the grace of God does not sit idly by in our life. Rather, Paul tells us in verse 12, it trains us. We should be extremely concerned when Christians say, well, it doesn't matter how you live because you're just saved by grace. Well, Paul clearly writes that misunderstands the active nature of grace. What does grace train us to do? Well, it gives us two negative things. Renounce ungodliness. renounce Renounce worldly passions. And then, Three positive things. It teaches us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in our lives. It's not only that grace trains us, though, but also notice what Jesus redeemed us for. Verse 14. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to... So what's the purpose? What did he save us for? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A few times in our life we've gone apple orchard picking. And you can walk up and down these rows and see apples just hanging. You can pick them off. And you see row and row of trees full of leaves and fruit. And yet if we came to one tree and it didn't have a single leaf and no fruit, what would we think? Well, we'd all just assume, well, that tree's dead. I mean, it's not like some deep here uh, story here. Tree has no leaves. It has no fruit. Is dead. Yet somehow we assume that there are Christians who don't have a leaf and don't have a single fruit on their life and go, well, they, you know, it's by grace through faith, so, you know, they're fine. It doesn't matter that there's no evidence. 
Now, of course, believers will not be perfect in this life. And we know lives of the heroes of the faith, so to speak. Abraham, David, Peter, these men created horrible sins. They did horrible sins. Yet there's a world of difference between having some rotten fruit on your tree and having no fruit on your tree. And so the Bible is clear. You're not saved by your works, but we are saved for works. So is your life characterized by being zealous to do good deeds? Are you eager to serve others, or is it always about you being served? Do you find joy in worshiping God, or is every Sunday a drudgery? In other words, is there signs, are there signs in your life on your spiritual tree of leaves and fruit, or is it a leafless, fruitless tree? And if it is a leafless, fruitless tree, then you must assume that you have not truly trusted in Christ. God's grace saves us apart from our works, but then motivates us to do good works. In Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, the main character, Jean Valjean, is a poor working class Frenchman. Very early in life, he became an orphan, and so his older sister raised him. Then tragedy struck her family because her husband died. Now, Jean Valjean, a man of 25, worked as a day laborer to provide for this widow and her children. Yet when winter came, work dried up, and the pantry and the cupboards were bare. So Jean Valjean broke into the bakery, took bread, and took it home. But he was caught, so he was put into prison for five years. In his fourth year, he attempted escape, but he was caught, and his prison sentence was extended. Several other times he tried to escape, and eventually it was 19 years before he was released from prison. And coming out after 19 years of prison for ultimately stealing a loaf of bread for poor children, he was a bitter, angry man. But not only that, every time he went into a city or a town, he had to go and present papers showing I'm an ex-convict. So none of the inns, none of the places of employment wanted to hire him. Well, he was making his way home through the French mountainous region, and he got to a town that was getting late in the day, and rumors started spreading of this rough-looking man who'd come, and he'd gone down to the court, and everyone knew who he was, and he was trying to find a place to stay, and everyone was refusing him until he was at the end of the town, and one woman says, well, go try the priest house. So he didn't think there was much hope, but he went and knocked on the door, and the priest welcomed him in. (coughs) He gave him a good meal. He treated him respectfully, let him sleep in the room right next to him. And you know how Jean Valjean returned this kindness? Well, he got up in the middle of the night, he stole the priest's silver candlesticks and snuck out. Well, as he was going through other towns, every town he looked like a suspicious character and they inspected him and found these candlesticks. So they take him back to the priest and there before the priest, they say, priest, we found Jean Valjean with your candlesticks. And he says, Jean Valjean, I can't believe it. I gave you the silverware of the utensils as well. Why didn't you take that with you last night? And he went and he got the forks and the spoons and he gave them to Jean Valjean. Well, Jean Valjean and the police stood there with mouths 
wide open. Jean Valjean fully expected he's back to prison. And yet the priest gives him grace upon grace. And the rest of the book is how his life was changed by grace. How he became a new man. And Victor Hugo rightly captures what grace does to a person. It changes them. It motivates them to holy living. So do you know this God of grace? Have you come to trust him? You know, and I know in our society that most of us are like the paralytic man in Mark 2. Sins? Who cares about that? I got bigger pressing issues. I need to walk. I need more finances. I need a relationship. And yet God says those things are important. But the most important thing is your relationship with me. And it's been ruined by sin. And yet I'm gracious and I will forgive you. All you must do is humble yourself. Admit your sin and trust in me and I will forgive you. So do you trust the God of grace that has shown us that grace in Christ? I pray that we all do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would we truly know your grace? Lord, not some abstract concept, not just a theological idea, but that you are a gracious being. That you reach down to sinful people like us and that you show us undeserved favor. Lord, may we stand amazed. May we be in awe of who you are and trust you in your grace. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.